This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Thanks for joining us for another episode freshly served into your podcast subscription feed every Thursday. Now this week we've come to Audley End House and Gardens near Saffron Walden in Essex. And as I walk over one of the bridges past the ducks, I can tell you that we've travelled here to the southeast of England to find out about an ordinary woman with an extraordinary legacy. Because as we take in this vast Jacobean country house and look to the bottom left of the building, where the service wing is concealed behind a cloud hedge, it's in that corner that Audley End's head cook would have been hard at work. I'm uh, Dr Andrew Han and I'm head of the historians team at English Heritage. Andrew, we've fast forwarded about 140 years or so and we're standing in the kitchen. We're here to talk about a fascinating character from this building and this room's past. Who is she? This is Avis Crocombe and she was the cook here at Audley End in the 1880s. Do we know exactly when? We know that she arrived around 1880, we're not absolutely certain, and she was here until 1884. Who did Avis Crocombe actually work for? Who owns this property? Well, in the 1880s, the owners of this house were Lord and Lady Braybrook, that's Charles and Florence Neville. And they'd been here since 1861, when Charles inherited from his brother Richard, who died fairly young. So they'd been here for about 20 years, and they had one daughter, Augusta, and she'd just left home at this point. So they're living, just the two of them, in this house with, obviously, a band of 30 or so servants. It's quite a lot of servants for just two people. It is indeed, yes, but when you've got a large house like, like Audley Enter Run, there's a lot of things that need you doing. And the gardens as well, of course. Exactly, yes, the very extensive gardens here. Well, we'll get out to them a little bit later, but um, talking more about Avis Crocombe specifically, during her time here in the 1880s, what was her daily life like? Well, Mrs Crocombe probably wouldn't have had to get up quite as early as some of her kitchen maids who were doing some of the preparatory work, you know, but you know, she would have been up probably by 7 o'clock getting ready for the day, trying to work out what meals were going to be served that day, if she had all the ingredients that she needed, speaking to the various kitchen maids and uh, scullery maids to make sure they knew what they were supposed to be doing, giving them their duties for the day, and then they would start doing all the chopping and preparing while Mrs Crocombe was you know, sort of maybe going through the recipes and the menus for the day. But her main role was to sort of prepare the posh stuff for the family's table and also to sort of prepare the plates to go up to the dining room. She would have been doing all the sort of coordinating activities. She would have been liaising with Lady Braybrook and the housekeeper to sort of know how many people were going to be dining that evening, what the menu should be. So she would be devising the menu. Then she'd had to liaise in terms of what produce was needed, go and talk to the kitchen gardener to see what there was in the kitchen gardens, but also talk to the housekeeper about what provisions they needed to buy in as well. So it's quite a responsible job. She had to sort of really, she was in charge here. Mrs Crocombe, she's a missus. Did she marry at some point? She did. I mean, all cooks tended to be called missus if they were a female cook. That's just as a mark of status. Really? While she was a cook here, she was unmarried. And actually, it was quite unusual for an aristocratic family of this type to have a female cook. It was much more prestigious to have a male cook, particularly a French chef. 
And at Orleans, they did have a French chef in the 1870s, a man called Jean Merer, and he was paid about £120 a year, whereas we think Avis probably only got about £50. But that's still equivalent to about £40,000 in today's money. So, you know, it's a good salary and certainly much more than she could have expected. You know, she came from fairly humble background, came from a Devon family where she was the daughter of a farmer, farmed about 40 acres of land. Mm. She left home when she was in her early teens and went and worked for her brother as a sort of general servant. And then she worked her way up to kitchen maid by her early 20s and then became a cook and housekeeper when she was probably in her 30s in the early 1870s to a family called the Proctor Beecham family who lived in Norfolk. And it was from there that she came, possibly through another house before then, toward Leander's Cook. So, you know, it's the pinnacle of her career when she's here. And she came a long way. She came all the way from the southwest here to Essex, which is some considerable distance. And that's a couple of hundred miles at least. Yes, that's really not unusual for servants. I mean, the servants here, Mary Ann Bulmer comes from Yorkshire, Sylvia Wise from Oxfordshire, Annie Chase, I think, was from somewhere in the East, East Anglia area as well. So they come from all over the country, and there is a national market for servants. So it wasn't at all unusual for someone like Avis to have come from Devon. And if you wanted to reach the pinnacle of your career and cook for the aristocracy, you had to be willing to come to London, because that's where a lot of them had their houses. Even in the job, Avis would have moved around the country with the Braybrooks. So when they were in their London house, I mean, the 1881 census finds her in London, at their London house at 42 Upper Brook Street. Then she will travel up toward the end with them when they came up here in the autumn for the shooting season. And then when in, the, in the summer, when they went on holiday to, say, Brighton or Margate, she would have gone with them then because she was following them around wherever they needed a cook. Of course, a personal travelling chef. But how else do we know about Mrs Crocombe? Well, we know a lot about Avis from the census records, but also from other official records like births, marriages and deaths. For instance, we know that she married in 1884 to Benjamin Stride and that they then set up a boarding house in Cambridge Terrace, which is near Paddington, just close to Hyde Park, and that she carried on running this until at least... 1915, there's records in trade directories for that, and then that she died in 1927. So we have quite a lot of sort of the bare bones of the story of Avis. But I understand there's also another crucial piece of evidence. There is indeed, and there's a gentleman I'll introduce you to in a second who can tell you a lot more about her family connections. Well, we've walked into the room where Mrs Crocombe probably would have dined with the housekeeper and butler in the 1880s. Today... It's part of the Visitor Café, and I'm sitting here with a gentleman who can tell us more about Audley End's famous cook. So, what's your name? My name's Bob Stride. Mrs Crocombe actually married my great-uncle, Benjamin Stride. After she left Audley End, she then went on to run a, a lodging house in London. Can you tell me a bit more about how you know so much about the work of Mrs Avis Crocombe? Well, I actually came into possession of a book some years ago from my aunt as she was moving home and I was helping her with that. And I put it away because she didn't want to keep it. And I put it away in a tea chest and really forgot all about it after that. When was this? That was back in about 1986. It just got left in the uh, tea chest until we were clearing out some things in 2009 and we sort of thought to ourselves, do we want to keep this book or not? And I was on the point of actually throwing it away. At this point, Bob shows me what turns out to be a recipe book. 
That's incredible. So this is the book. It's, it's actually quite small. It is indeed, yes. It's really just a, a notebook when it comes to it, because if you actually see inside, you'll see that it's all handwritten, and it doesn't obviously have the quantities of the ingredients, because obviously they didn't have scales then, in the same way that there's no cooking instructions as to temperature. It was all just put in front of the fire. Yeah. Is it leather-bound? Yes, it's leather-bound. It's quite brown and aged, yes. obviously. It's very. T- I've seen books like this myself, actually, in the past. But it's just an ordinary little notebook. On one of the first pages there, Bob, we've got Mrs Crocombe's name, Avis Crocombe, in uh, her handwriting. And underneath, what does that say? Yes, the, underneath, actually, it says receipt book. And I presume from that, that years ago, that's how they really regarded it, because it's just a note of her recipes, rather than the re- a recipe as such. Yeah, and we've got a sort of creamish coloured page, probably yes, from all, age, and brownish writing. Indeed, yes, it's all very discoloured now through age. <laughs> how many pages do we have? Well, there's about 80 altogether. And what's interesting as well is it almost looks like one of those textbooks from school yes. where you've got this sort of very fine, faint, blue horizontal line where you would, which would be the guidelines oh, upon yes. which you'd write. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> so really the way that you write into school books these days or textbooks, mm. notebooks, hasn't really changed much. Not at all, no. So why did you donate the book? Well, it was strange, actually, because we decided that perhaps we might contact Audley End, having seen in the front that she had uh, written, or it had been written, I should say, that she was a cook at Audley End. And I just thought, well, maybe, rather than throwing her away, we'd give Audley End a ring. I left a message with them, and a few days later, I was really surprised when somebody from English Heritage phoned up and said they would be interested to see it. And as a result, we made a, an appointment to meet up in um, a few weeks' time because we had the opportunity to come to Alderley End with a group of people. They were coming to see a concert that was being held. So we came along with them. So in total, how long did you have the book before you actually parted with it? It um, sounds like a long time since yes. the 1980s. Well, uh, yeah, about, it would be about 25 years altogether. But did you struggle to part with it then? Because obviously you came across it as a bit of an accident and then you had it in your possession for quite a long time. Yes. Well, although I did, I mean, we didn't actually look at it all the time because it had been put away in a tea chest. So I didn't sort of value it in that respect. But I did think that if if it went back towards the end, not expecting everything to happen as it has, but at least it might give the opportunity of other people visiting the home to actually see the book. When you did hand it over, were you quite pleased to sort of reunite it with its former home? I was, yeah. I am very pleased, actually, that it has come back here. I'm just hoping that other people will come visit the home house here and and see it and enjoy it just the same. Absolutely. And see the kitchen and uh, and relive the story of your your distant relative. Yes, that's right. Well, I've made my way out to the kitchen garden and standing by the vinery range, which almost stretches wall to wall, is a figure admiring the rows and rows of vegetables which were grown here. Hello, I'm Dr Annie Gray. I'm a food historian and an advisor to the Mrs Crocombe Project. Annie, this is one big allotment, effectively. How big is it? I mean, this is 
really, really vast. Well, we're standing in one of four walled gardens. It spans to about nine acres in total. So if you try and imagine it, I mean, you can see the walls here. This is, what, a football pitch? So there's four of these, and this one is laid out with vegetables, and the one just over the wall there has got an orchard in. So in its heyday, this would have been providing most of the fruit and vegetables for the house, really. Almost like a, a supermarket from... Uh, <laughs> from Victorian times in a way. Yes, and the important thing about having your own kitchen garden was that you could manage the stocks, you could retard and you could force fruit and vegetables. So retarding is when you have something out of season that you've managed to hold back. So for example, grapes, you would grow them and then you'd cut them just before they were ready and put them into little sort of jam jars of water so that you could have grapes after the season. And then forcing is the other way around. That's when you bring things on. So something like rhubarb or sea kale, for example, would have pots put over them so that they would be ready just a little bit before the rest of the season. And if you look behind you at these walls as well, you can see there are espaliered fruit trees all the way around the garden, and they're on every single wall. And the management of this was absolutely crucial and brilliant. So if you're on a north-facing wall, you get your fruit slightly later than if it's on a south-facing wall. You grew the specific varieties for each wall. You could have, if you were an aristocrat and you had a kitchen garden like this, you could have whatever you wanted in terms of fruit and vegetables at any point throughout the year. Is this where Mrs Crocombe was sourcing most of her ingredients or did she buy them in from elsewhere? Some of them. So this is just fruit and vegetables. So let's set aside things like milk and spices and flour and things like that, which would have been bought from local shops mainly. Uh, apart from the milk, obviously, there was a dairy herd here. It's an ornamental garden as well as a working garden. The reason it looks so beautiful is because these gardens were places that the aristocracy, the family, would have come down to look at and admire. So this was very much about admiring your gardeners at work and seeing how good they were. So displaying the skills of your gardeners on your table. Mrs Crocombe would have been able to call upon the gardener at very short notice to provide whatever she needed to do and normally a cook of her status in a house like this would sit down and plan the menus on a daily basis with the mistress of the house keeping an eye on what was in what was not in what was fresh what wasn't good have also a daily conference with the gardener who would tell her what she, what he had and then she would do her order and she would have been able to call upon absolutely anything so if she wanted peaches in the middle of december not a problem they could provide that. She wanted pineapples in January, also not a problem. Asparagus for the Christmas table. But conversely, if she wanted root vegetables like parsnips or potatoes, which we might associate with the winter today, those would have been ready for her as well in July. So this was an enormous undertaking, like a sort of proto-factory in some ways, the huge team of gardeners, and it meant that Mrs Crocan would have been able to prepare absolutely anything she wanted to. It's fascinating. So what kind of recipes, going back to the book that we've just seen, would have come out of this garden? The book doesn't contain very many vegetable-specific recipes because Victorian tables, they did have a lot of vegetables on them, but they tended to be relatively simply prepared. So something like sea kale with a melted butter sauce would be fairly typical. But the book does contain some recipes which do call upon specific fruit and vegetables. There's a recipe for a gâteau de pomme, which uses an apple called a nonsuch, which is grown here still today. There's another one which is an apples and cream in a mould. And then an awful lot of her stocks and her base preparations would have called upon things like celery and carrots and that kind of thing as well so you do have to read the book carefully to find the vegetables in it but they're certainly there in mrs crocombe's cookbook as well was it all her own handiwork or did she sort of borrow from other chefs or other sources and write it into the book how did it work she very much borrowed it was a working cook's cookery book so 
almost certainly very few of the recipes were her own. She didn't really invent them, but she would have copied recipes as she found them. She would have borrowed them from other people. We know some of the sources, not very many. Uh, Eliza Acton, she certainly used, and that's quite evident because Eliza Acton laid out her recipes in her printed recipe book, which is called Modern Cookery, which is a brilliant book. She laid out her recipes with the ingredients at the bottom. So in Avis's cookery book, where she's copied the recipes from Acton, you can see at the bottom she's put the ingredients. So that's quite an obvious one. We know that she used a book called Crifford's Daily Fair as well. There's a couple of recipes that she's taken from there. And we've managed to find a few other sources. It's a bit of a work in progress because she abbreviated them. So it's not quite as simple as just looking for the phrases and then finding them in other recipes. For example, there is a recipe for roast swan in Mrs. Crocombe's manuscript cookery book, which is all written as, as prose, so complete sentences. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you realise that she took that recipe from a rhyme. So the original recipe was laid out as a poem and it came with swans ordered from Norwich. Now it was reprinted in lots of books so she may have copied it from a book but the likelihood is given we know she worked in Loddon which is about nine miles from Norwich that she probably at some point took receipt of a swan or a signet it would have been ready for the table from Norwich and with it would have come this recipe written as a poem but she copied it into her cookery book and she missed out some of the bits that make it rhyme so it was virtually impossible to tell that it was a poem originally and then when we figured it out it was it was yeah it's brilliant. Obviously, we don't really eat those today, I don't think. No, they're protected by various acts. So things like swan and lark and rook pie as well. Those are things that would have featured on the Braybrook's table. Well, not so much rook pie, that was a bit of a plebeian dish. But we don't eat them now, either because they're protected or because tastes have changed. I mean, we don't eat peacock anymore, but apparently that's because it's quite nasty. Right. And English food, it sounds like, has really changed. Our tastes have literally changed uh, since the 1880s. I think we've become more restricted in many ways in our diet, certainly in terms of the garden where we're standing at the moment. The range of fruit and vegetables that was grown in the 1880s was far, far greater than what we would see today. You go to the average supermarket today, what do you see? Five apples, six apples? Most of them will be modern varieties. But a garden like this would have been growing probably about three or 400 varieties in the orchard, and you could get about 1,500 to 3,000 varieties of apple, depending on when you're looking at in the Victorian era and how specialist you want to get. In terms of other tastes, I think obviously in the Victorian era things like Asian food and some of the South American food, Japanese food, those were things that you could get them if you really 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 tried hard but they weren't certainly part of our diet on an everyday basis apart from Indian food. So we eat more stuff now which is global but conversely we've lost a lot of the variety and we we also in terms of meat we tend to eat the nice bits. I think we're a bit sort of picky now and we don't seem to realise that actually an animal is there and if you're going to farm it and you're going to feed it and you're going to pay for it it's a costly beast whereas the Victorians would have looked at it and thought right every single bit of this needs to be transformed there's no such thing as oogie food there's only food that has the potential to be nice if it is treated well and of course the Victorians were heating huge glass houses to produce their food in Britain so they were using vast quantities of fossil fuels to produce their pineapples in the winter so every era I think has its own environmental issues. Mm, that's a really interesting point. Well, you've obviously touched on the fact that there's a glass house and if we head that way, perhaps we can go inside and see how they cultivated these pineapples. Annie, we've come into the glass house and this is where Mrs Crocom would have got her pineapples grown from. But what else would she have grown here? Because looking across, it looks like we've got some vines. Yeah, so these 
glass houses like this were often known as pinery vineries and the way in which vines were grown as you can see here was very specific so this glass house is sort of a lean-to so it's got a, a roof which is at 45 degree angle to the wall and the vines have got their roots outside so you grow the vine outside the glass house and then it comes in through a hole in the wall and then it is grown up against this huge beautiful window and at the moment the vines are actually horizontally across the room because the gardeners have taken them down for pruning they're all on pulleys so they can be pulled back up to the ceiling but glass houses like this were, were used for almost anything you can imagine so uh, you could put nectarines in them you could put in your cucumbers you can again some things would be grown outside so that they would be ready at a certain time of year other things would be grown inside so they'd be ready a little bit earlier or perhaps be a little sweeter and they'd be brought back in as well to be protected so these in the day would have been a hive of activity mrs croken probably didn't visit them very often i mean i'm sure she had visited the gardens on a few times but it wasn't her who would come out and, and pick things she'd be sending down orders and the gardener's boy would be bringing them up in a barrow Mm. And we're joined again by Dr Andrew Han, who we met in the kitchen at the start of this episode. Andrew, uh, welcome back. Now, I've heard on the grapevine, no pun intended, that Mrs Crocombe can not just be experienced through this cookbook, which is here at Audley End, but there's also a series of videos that people can see. There are indeed, yes. We've been, well, since 2015, when we became a charity, and we decided we really needed to sort of publicise the organisation and, and this was seen as something that would really have some traction with, with visitors so we started filming them then and they've gone from strength to strength ever since. And this is a YouTube channel, Annie? Yes, it's the English Heritage's YouTube channel. So if you were to go to a search engine and type in English Heritage, the Victorian way, you'd get both Mrs. Crocombe's videos, but also there are a few with the gardeners. There are some about horsemanship. There's all sorts of bits and pieces, although it's got to be said that Mrs. Crocombe does form the bulk of it. The reason they exist, actually, is because when English Heritage was given charitable status, they looked at their YouTube channel, which at the time was quite a mishmash of things. And the best performing video is a video of Cathy Hipperson in role as a cook, not Mrs. Crocombe, just a cook, cooking a Christmas pudding. And it consistently performed very, very well. So they thought, well, can we do something about this? And of course, then realised there was already an existing project, which is the interpretation project here at the house, where there are girls and the occasional boys in costume, in character. There's already a cook. There's already a person who plays the cook. There's already an existing story. There's already, thanks to Andrew, a huge body of research. Let's see what we can do with this character. So the first few videos were based on Mrs Croke and really because we already had all this information and a site to film at and they've just gone from strength to strength they are now getting at their maximum they get about two million hits for each video which is extraordinary. Why do you think her recipe videos are so popular? I think basically people like to sort of hark back to the past and think about how people would have eaten a hundred years ago whatever and it because you know modern cookbooks are so sort of commonplace now that there's actually this desire to go back and look at something different and try something different and that's why the videos have become so popular. I, I know some people have actually tried cooking some of the recipes and following the instructions that Mrs Crocombe gives in the videos and they actually put some of the videos of their own on, on YouTube to show them themselves cooking those I think also there is, because the story is attached to Mrs Crocombe, she's not a made-up figure. She's not just someone cooking in costume. Mrs Crocombe, Avis Crocombe, existed. She was a real person, a real cook. And therefore the stories that are told through those videos are real stories about people who actually lived. The actress who plays Mrs Crocombe, Cathy Hipperson, is very, very skilled as well. And people really do seem to warm to her. We've got lots of language learners that watch the videos because they're quite sort of nice, they're slow, the diction's very good. And people who watch them for relaxation as much as anything. And 
of got, I think, quite taken up with the characters. Because the complexity of the project, which has been running for so long here at Audley End House, is such that there are huge backstories attached to people. So when Cathy is enrolled as Mrs. Crocom, she will quite easily say, oh, well, of course, my kitchen maid, Mary Ann, who's da 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 And she knows that because actually here, she's been living that every weekend since 2008. So it feels very real. And we have people who say, oh, well, you know, what about Mrs. Crocom's sister? Or I really feel for this character. And they are quite emotionally invested, actually, in, in her which I think is a really lovely thing. To both of you, what next for Mrs Crocom? She's obviously been a real person. She created this fabulous recipe book. There's the YouTube videos. You can also see reenactments in person, in the flesh. What happens next? Can the story go any further? Well, well <laughs> there's a book. Yes. Andrew and I have co-authored a book, a cookery recipe book. It is both Avis's rest, some of Avis's recipes from her manuscript, plus the recipes that have been done on the YouTube channel, plus other Victorian recipes that we are fairly certain she would have had access to, so it forms a composite whole. You wouldn't actually be able to cook a, a full Victorian meal from Avis's manuscript cookbook. You'd just have a lot of pudding. So we, we've sort of added in other recipes so you could. Andrew's done lots and lots of genealogical work. Yeah, so we've got a bit of a sort of introduction there when we sort of talk about what Audley M was like at the time. We talk about Avis Crocombe herself, her backstory and what we know about her and her family and also what we know about the kitchens at Audley End and, and how they would have functioned in the past in the time when Avis was here. Yeah, and every recipe is contextualised. There's an introduction about each recipe. There are loads of facts that Andrew and I have come up with that are just cool, interesting things about either Avis Crocombe or Audley End or Victorian food or whatever it is. So it's packed full of stuff and it's also been beautifully photographed. Has it been difficult creating this recipe book? Was it a bit like doing a banquet or was it more like a, a labour of love, a dinner party for friends sort of thing? Um, I'm not sure I should answer that. <laughs> it was a mixture of the two. I think both of us have been emotionally involved with this yeah, for probably. so long that it does feel a bit like sort of closure, really. Yeah. We came up with this idea of doing a cookbook pretty much in 2008-9, yeah. yeah, didn't we? Yeah, we said, yeah. let's do it, yeah. and it didn't happen at the time. No, and, and so we've been trying to get something done with it for so long that it feels right. That doesn't mean it was without pain. Selecting recipes from Avis's manuscript when a lot of them are essentially the same, that was quite difficult. Selecting other recipes to match that would be replicable at home, that was quite difficult. We worked with a really good team of chefs to pull the recipes together to modernise them. And also because we're very conscious that the YouTube audience is global and therefore this book will have global sales, hopefully lots and lots of people will visit Audley End and lots of other sites and buy it on site, but it did need to be converted for American cup measurements and I do not understand why they exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I imagine going through and like modernising all those recipes must have been quite a slog as well and yeah. putting the modern versions of them all Just, in. Yeah. yeah, and of course she uses Imperial... But some of her older recipes are almost certainly pre-1834 Imperial, which is different to post-1834 Imperial, but it's the same as the American Imperial, but then we didn't want the American Imperial, and then this table just even don't go there. Looking ahead to the launch of the cookbook, obviously, what are your favourite recipes from it, if you can choose one each? <laughs> I like the gâteau de pomme, I must admit. I've actually tasted that one, which is one of the few I've actually tasted, because when we had a, a film shoot here, we actually had some of it, and I think I was a bit greedy and took a several and that's apples, portions. isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. It's a really good recipe. I would have to go for the amber pudding. I'm not normally a sweet person, but the amber pudding is one written not in Avis Crocombe's handwriting, actually. It's written in somebody else's handwriting towards the end of the book, and it's a very simple steamed suet pudding with a lot of orange marmalade in, and it's really good. 
Can I have a second one? Can we go for the apple dumplings as well, which kind of combines both of them, because it's marmalade and suet and apple, and it's not one of Avis's, it's one of Eliza Acton's, but my God, it's good. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go and have lunch, and you can tell me about all the other things that you'd like to eat as well. We're going to get Bob, we'll go for lunch. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. The book, How to Cook the Victorian Way, is available to order now through the English Heritage online shop. Next week, we're celebrating London's Blue Plaque Women and Women's History Month. If you walk down a central London street and look up, you will probably see one of these blue plaques, and that plaque is on the building in which they lived or worked. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>